there was a puppy outside, and Caleb chased it. She's not even listening to me right now. So, yeah, he's right there. So, anyway, um, our son has a fascination with puppies. It doesn't matter the size of it, a dog, uh, but everything's a puppy. And so he'll chase it down the street, and, and yeah, he loves it. Seriously. Nothing? Liz, help me out. Come sit in the middle. Okay, that's fine. Y'all want to be way over there, I see. All good. All good. Good to see you. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at Bethany Ballard. Uh, it's, it's wonderful that you've joined us. We are in our second week of our Lent series, Formed in the, wil- formed in the Wilderness, as you see on the slides. Uh, it's a time where we intentionally go on a journey with Christ towards the cross, because that's what Lent is. And so I'm glad that you've joined us. Uh, we are going through one of my favorite books of the Bible called Exodus. And it's the second one, Genesis, Exodus. Uh, in it, it it's, it's a lot. It's, it's an awesome book. We, we tend to stay away from it because it gets kind of confusing in the middle, but that's all right. We're going to be focusing on the very beginning parts. Last week, we talked about this introduction to God, really, because that's what is happening with the people of Israel. They've been in slavery for 430 years, as it says in Exodus 16. 430 years. That's a long time. And now they're introduced to this God, and they're coming out into this wilderness, and this God is taking them not just to the desert, but he's bringing them on a journey. But before they can fully enter in the land, they need to be shaped, and they need to get to know their God. And so these first few chapters that we're talking about, Exodus 15, 16, and 17, is Israel, before they get to Mount Sinai, learning who God is. And so today, they're finding out that God is not just a God of the major and the spectacular. They're finding out that God is a God of the ordinary. And if I, when I think of ordinary, I always think of road trips. How many of you have ever taken a seriously long road trip? Everybody. Especially right now, because it's like for a while you couldn't fly, right? Uh, in, in college, I went to a school, a school in San Diego... Uh, we would wake up in the morning. Usually we would cut class on Fridays. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. We would cut class on Fridays and we would all hop in my buddy's van. It was an old Astro van. And uh, we would load the surfboards on top and we would bomb down to Mexico. Now we'd go like four hours deep into Mexico where we would surf. We would live on hot dogs and Mexican soda for three days, and then we would come back late Sunday night, just in time to get in bed before uh, classes on 8 a.m. Monday morning Old Testament survey. Uh, This was what we did, but there was this time in the road trip where you first start out, we usually left around 11 p.m. at night, and, and we would drive all night into Mexico, but when we got to the border, it was usually this time of like, okay, this is gonna be a long trip. And everyone takes that collective sigh. It's that moment where you realize, like, we're in it for the long haul now. We are now in a foreign country. There are hidden stop signs. None of us speak real good Spanish. In fact, we'll probably be arrested if we try and speak Spanish. Uh, But we're just going to go. And it's this time when you, you realize that the trip is not going to be an easy trip, no matter how long you have been on this trip or how many times you've taken this trip. And there's an important aspect that happens on a road trip. The major question, who's with you, right? On a long road trip, who's driving with you? Is it a sleeper? Is the person next to you going to sleep and snore the whole way? How many of you all are sleepers in the car? 
Matt Brace, okay, don't go on a road trip with you. Uh, is this person going to be snoring the whole time? Or sometimes even worse, is this person a chatter? Like, nya, 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 nya. how many of you, be honest, spouses, relationship people, don't nudge too hard. How many of you are chatty? Okay, good. Because the two are the opposite extremes. One chatty is almost just as annoying because sometimes you just want to be quiet and listen to the air conditioning, right? And, uh, and, and then the other side is just snoring and you'd like to say something or perhaps you're getting lulled to sleep by the heavy breathing. And so there's this happy middle of who's with you when it comes to road trips. There's the middle person who doesn't like to talk a lot will listen to the podcast, or when we were driving to Mexico, it was our CD envelope, because we didn't have iPods back then, this is how old I am, uh, so we had a CD, shut up Dylan, uh, we had a CDs, I'll, I'll show you what CDs are, and we would listen to various things, teachings or music, and then you want, they, we'd talk about it, you know, you want the person that's the happy medium, because for the next However long you're trapped in this car with angry truck drivers, minivans, and everything, you're trapped in this car. You want somebody who's going to be with you, who's going to suffer those four hours of monotony alongside of you. This is sort of what Israel's coming to, okay? They've had a spectacular exit. They were excited. They left Egypt and the sea was split. And some people, I imagine, running back and forth going, look at that, look at that. And other people going, this is entirely frightening. And so, but they walk through this. They've had the spectacularness happen. They had the plagues. They had the pillar of fire. They're pumped, right? This is the first hour of the long road trip. And then they get out of Egypt and they start walking and they realize this journey that we're on is going to take a long time. We do the same thing. We're on a journey with God. We're learning rhythms and movements in God's voice. We're learning ways of living, and we're trying to find our place in it. Israel's journey towards God in the promised land is just like ours, and today I want to look at what Israel did in the midst of their journey once it set in how long they were going to be on it. There we can discover what God does to shape us in those times of the ordinary, in the times of the mundane, in the minutes that become monotonous. Because this road trip analogy fits Israel and it fits us. Here's what happened. Exodus 16.1. It might be on the screens. It might not. If not, you have a Bible on your phone that you can flip to. You can do it. I believe in you. Exodus 16.1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam. Remember, Elam was this desert oasis that we looked at last year. It had 12 springs and 70 palms. It was beautiful. It was relaxing. They set out and they went into the desert of Sin. Now it says sin, but it's not an English word. It's a Hebrew word. The desert of Sin. It might seem sinful because it's the wilderness and it's hard. It fits, whatever, but it's not. Which this, this is between Elam and Sinai. They're heading towards Sinai. One day we'll talk about all the mountains in the scriptures and how everyone has a point. Sinai is the, one of the, is the second major mountain in scripture that means something. So they're going through. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out in Egypt. Time stamps, okay? Time stamps are important in scripture. 15th day of the second month. Math people, how many days are we looking at? 
15th day. 15th day of the second month. Close. You have the second digit right. She said 75. 45. They're on day 45. 75. Probably felt like 75 days. 45 days into this journey. Okay? That's a long time. They've been walking 45 days. So take this into mind before you look at the people of Israel and go, oh, I can't believe them. Okay? They've been at this thing for 45 days. Oh, I'm halfway to Bellingham and I'm already getting anxious when I drive up there. Okay? That's like 45 minutes. 45 days. And so it's no shock that they were kind of getting tired of this. Next verse. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. You have to read this very dramatically, kind of whiny, okay? If only we had died by, let's see if I could channel my two-year-old. There we sat around pots of meat and ate the food all we wanted. But you've brought us out here in the desert to starve the entire assembly to death. I get it. 45 days they've been on this journey. But you you can kind of give them grace, but you, you really have to be honest with them. This is totally and absolutely short sighted for them to complain right now. Don't they remember what's happened? Don't they remember that the God who separated uh, the sea is still walking with them? And this is what this idea of complaining means. It's holding a grudge. It's murmuring. It's kind of kicking the rocks and going, this is what they were doing. In fact, that's the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is actually loon. It should be up there now. It means to complain or hold hold a grudge against somebody. And what was their complaint? Who are they holding a grudge against? It's important you see this. Moses and Aaron. They, I believe, that it's Moses and Aaron who have brought them out of Egypt. And now they're complaining against Moses and Aaron that brought them out of Egypt. Pop quiz. Who brought them out of Egypt? God. Points for J. God, not Moses and Aaron. So they're complaining against Moses and Aaron. You brought us out here to starve to death. And then they start reminiscing because this is what happens when your lives get boring. You start to think of how good yesterday was, right? Let's take this past year. How many thought 2019 was awesome? Yeah? Was it? No. But the reality of being trapped inside for 2020 has made 2019 look so much better 2018, even better than that. And so you tend to begin to reminisce fondly about days that were probably just as mundane as the days you are in now. 2020 stunk. 2019 was better. 2021, who knows how it's going to go. But here we are. Here's Egypt. And here's the Israelites. They're saying, it was so much better in Egypt. We had meat pots. Meat pots were this idea of kettle, like this big iron kettle that they would boil meat in. Not only that, they would boil water and the water would be used for bathing. It was a hot shower. It was medicinal. Now they're in the wilderness. They're camping, which is awful in general. And now they're camping and they don't have meat pots. But here's the deal. 
when they were in Egypt, they probably didn't have meat pots either. And so in their ordinary life, in their boring walk for 45 days, they're elevating this idea of what used to be but wasn't really. We do that. Don't, oh, I do that. I get going and life kind of starts to get monotonous. And then I start thinking, oh, I was so much better back then. I'm just going to return. When things get hard, we tend to want to go back to the way things were, Right? Let's say you're, 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 you've quit drinking or you've quit an addiction and things get harder, they get monotonous. You don't have that anymore. And now you want to run back to it because you think it was so much better. You, you, you think that, that you had a connection with the porn site and that that person knew you. And so when things get hard, you want to run back to it. It doesn't work like that. The monotonous ordinary brought the people, they wanted to go back to slavery. The prison of the ordinary was calling them back into its jail cell. We see it all the time. You're serial dating. Maybe the next relationship will change me. And you jump to the next person. Or it's finances. Maybe if I make one more dollar... Maybe if they change jobs, if I change organizations, maybe it'll be better. Or you're at this organization, you're like, eh, it was better back then when it wasn't. You see, we do this. We, we, we glorify what was, and the chances are it wasn't any better. So the people of Israel have this sort of Stockholm syndrome. They desired to go back to their captors where they thought they experienced freedom because sometimes going back to slavery looks like a better option than pursuing freedom. Sometimes going back to a lifestyle that wasn't God-honoring looks better than chasing down a God-honoring lifestyle. We fall into that. I fall into that. Everyday life with Jesus tends to lull us to sleep and we dream, of a, we dream of something that wasn't instead of what actually is. So here's how it works for me. For those of you who are new here, this, this is new. For those of you who have been here for a while, I struggle with anxiety. It's not a secret. It's a clinical thing. It's in gen- my genetics. It's kind of the way I was raised and it's something that I'm constantly fighting against. But one of the many things uh, that I've learned is that anxiety is a prison for my mind. And here's how it works. Uh, I'll get so focused on the, apos- the a possibility of something happen that I'll actually forget the reality around me. So I pray for peace, and God grants peace. And it's wonderful. It's miraculous. It's spectacular. I realize that I'm more present with my wife. I'm happier with my kids. I'm in a better mood. I don't have this anxiousness around me. And then something happens in the day-to-day. Uh, I, I actually start to miss my anxiety. I start worrying that I'm not worrying about something. It's true. What, what, why, why is this happening? What's going on? And so the ordinary, I stop giving my day-to-day to God, and I fall back into trying to handle it myself. See how this works? And then I walk over to this prison cell. I open the door of anxiety, and I shut the door behind me. I know what freedom tastes like. But that could be kind of boring. I want to worry about something. So I go back to my prison cell. It's a cycle. And as you read through Exodus, you'll see this over and over again. The people of of Israel go back from trusting in God to trusting in themselves, from obeying God's words 
than not obeying God's words. The ordinary at times encourages us to walk the other way. What the prison cell of the ordinary blinds you to is the many and massive ways that God is moving in the, mo- in the midst of your mundane. So here's what happens. They were hungry, hangry. They were tired. They missed food. They missed boiled meat. They missed the comforts of what they thought they had. And here's what God does. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether or not they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they, what they bring in. It is to be twice as much as they gather on any other day. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites in the evening... You will know that that it was the Lord, notice, it was the Lord, not Moses and Aaron, who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against them. Who are we that you should grumble against us? So Moses and Aaron are saying, look, we're not the ones who brought you out. It's God who's the one who's brought you out. Not only that, God's not angry with you. They didn't know any better. God's not mad at Israel at this point for grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Not this time. In a little while, they'll realize that it was God who brought them out, and they'll start complaining against God, and it'll be a whole thing they'll, instead of blaming Moses. But look how God responds. He's fully aware that they didn't know, and he's like, okay, I'm going to meet you right there in your ignorance, really. I'm going to meet you there. And I'm going to show you, not only did I bring you out, but what does he do? He gives them the food to sustain them every day. So look where God meets them, right in the middle of their hunger. And now he says in verse 4, notice this, it'll be up there. I will rain down food on you. Not Moses, not Aaron. Verse 6, you will know that the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who brought you out. Verse 7, you will know that the Lord, Yahweh, is the one that heard you. So look, in the midst of your 45 days of walking, and there's like another 39 and a half years coming, in the midst of all of this, you're going to realize something. God is the one with you in the middle of the ordinary. It's not Moses' show. It's not Aaron's show. It's not Miriam's show. It's not any of the 70 elders that will be appointed in a few chapters. It's none of their show. This is God who's going to be with you in the midst of your long, mundane, ordinary life. God's going to be with you, and he's going to give you a daily reminder of his presence. God reminds Israel that not only is he the Red Sea splitting plague sending God who can also make sour water taste like lemonade. He's the God who is in the everyday subtlety of life. Because if God only provided in the miraculous way, the result would be that we think that God only works that way. And then when the miraculous doesn't happen, what happens to our faith? Where does God go? Miracles are great. Miracles happen. I believe it. I've seen them. But if they happened every day, would they be miraculous? No. They would be the every day. 
So God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to give you the little tiny things. Literally, I'm going to give you breadcrumbs every single morning so that you remember my presence is with you. Jesus ran into this. Uh, there were some people in John 6. Jesus comes, uh, is, uh, is feeding the 5,000. Okay, he just gave bread to everybody. And everyone was awed and they, they ate to their fill. And then they start chasing Jesus and they start wanting more. And Jesus, it's kind of one of these shocking ways. Jesus looks at them in verse 26 of John and says, uh, looks at them and says, basically, you're following me because you want more bread. You're only following me for the miracles. You're not following me for me. You're only following me for what I can give you, not what I've done for you. You're not really wanting me. You're wanting a show. This is what God is trying to show the people of Israel. Chase and follow me. I'm the one riding shotgun with you in this journey of yours. I'm the one going to sustain you. Follow me, not the miracles. There's a story of a PhD art student, an art history student, that used to go around to all the museums. And he would go around and he would look at every single painting, but he wouldn't really look at it. He would just get the dates and who was with it and where they were and just the basics. And then he would go around to another museum. He never really spent time with any of the paintings. Sure, he got his PhD, Probably did very well and he got it in record time. But at no point in the process did he ever stand back and look at the paintings. At no point in the process did he allow the paintings to affect him. At no point did he awe at them. He knew the paintings, but he never knew the artist. Oftentimes when we come to our relationship with God, we want to see the paintings. We want to see the explosive and God's like, no, I want to give you the every day. I want to give you the bread that will sustain you. God wants Israel to know him, not just for the miraculous, not just for the, for the Red Sea. He wants to show them that he can take care of their daily needs. And it's all pointing to this. Verse 8. You will know that it was the, that it was the Lord when he gives you meat in the evening and bread all you want in the morning. It's like Olive Garden. All you can eat breadsticks every morning. Because he has heard you grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us. You are grumbling against the Lord. All the bread you want. All the quail you can eat. Now here's the deal. That can get kind of old after a while, right? How many ways can you make bread? How many ways can you dress a quail? But every day. And here's the funny part. You can go to Joshua. Uh, I believe it, it might be in there, Stephen. Joshua uh, 5.12. The manna stopped. The manna in the quail stopped the day after they ate food for the land. God took care of their everyday needs for 40 years. You read about it here. You read about it in Numbers 11. And then you read about it stopping. How is that? Every day, your food Everything comes from God. It's amazing if you think about it. In Deuteronomy 29, 5 and 6 says this. During the 40 years I led you through the wilderness, God's talking here, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. They went 40 years without a wardrobe change. You see that? Their clothes never wore out. 
They walked for 40 years in the desert. Their sandals never went through. Not only was God providing for their everyday physical needs, he was dressing them. Everything they needed, they had for their daily journey. You ate no bread, you drank no wine or fermented drink. I did this, why? So that you would see that I am the Lord your God. And what that's subtly saying is I'm not only the God of the big, I'm the God of the small too. Daily needs. They never needed it. They didn't worry about the skinny jean hair part thing. Right? Is that the debate now? I don't know. They didn't worry about the trends. God took care of everything. Why? So that they would know who God is in the small things. God specializes in the small. God specializes in the ordinary. But problem that I have with the ordinary, I don't know if it's you, is I get bored with it. My wife, lovely wife Carrie, can eat the same thing every day for every meal. Like, that's her thing. She doesn't like a lot of uh, variety. That's her deal. It's great. I get bored if I have the same thing for lunch twice. Okay? So imagine me on this trip. It's bread and quail. Bread and quail. I identify a lot with the Israelites in Numbers 11 where it says, we have lost our appetite. All we see is manna. I agree with that. The thing is, so would you. Because it becomes so monotonous with your everyday life. You, the everyday miracles of God become so monotonous that you actually take them for granted. How many of you actually think it's your alarm clock that wakes you up every day? Oh, God wakes you up. He allows you to wake up. We take the very breath in our lungs for granted. Stop breathing. Even your breath is a gift of God. The fact that you're seeing things with your eyes is a gift from God. Most of you walked here. Gift from God. You were in a house gift from God. Most of you sleep last night. Okay, good for you. You obviously don't have children. Gift from God. Do you see the everyday miracles that have become so monotonous that you miss them? Right? Gifts from God. Miracles in the mundane. God is a God who specializes in the ordinary, what Israel found out in the wilderness is something that you and I need to figure out ourselves. God is the God of the big, but God is more often the God of the small. He does his best work in the ordinary. He always has. Okay, let's look at scripture real quick. In Genesis, Jacob decides he's going to go to sleep in the wilderness. It's in Genesis 28, I believe. Uh, yep, he has a dream there. He decides he's going to go to sleep. It's just an ordinary place. He goes to sleep, uses a rock as a pillow. It's not the my pillow. It's just a rock. And he sleeps there. And then he has this dream about angels going up and down. And there he meets God. He wakes up the next morning and goes, wow, surely God was in this place. And I didn't even notice. God in the mundane. God in the ordinary. 
In the beginning of Exodus, one of the, the Exodus 3 and 4, Moses is spending a lot of time in the wilderness. He's a shepherd. He's on the far side of the desert. He's walking up and down the very trails he's walking on here in Exodus 16. And he sees this bush every single day. But now that same boring bush that he passes is on fire. The rabbis had this question, how many times did God try and get his attention from that bush before he lit a fire to it? God in the ordinary. Only now Moses sees this ordinary bush and now it has an extraordinary purpose. David, King David, an ordinary shepherd, so ordinary that when you read in 1 Samuel 16, when you read about his introduction, his dad even forgets about him. Uh, Nathan, or, yeah, Nathan or Samuel came to town and he's looking for a new king and he says, show me your sons and he carts out all of his sons and, and uh, Samuel's like, none of these are the guy. Do you have another son? And Jesse, David's dad, goes, oh yeah, I have one more, but he's kind of scrawny. You sure you want him? He's ordinary. David, ordinary man, ordinary person, ordinary shepherd becomes an extraordinary king. And er, later, a few chapters later, David learned how to kill lions and bears. Oh my, lions and tigers and bears. Learns how to kill them in the wilderness, taking care of his sheep with an ordinary sling. Then he walks into the camp to visit his brothers. And there's this extraordinary giant across the way. And they say, we can't fight him. So what's David do? He takes his ordinary sling, leaves the extraordinary armor behind, takes five smooth stones in the rock, kind of ordinary stones, and then plants the stone in Goliath's head and says, this is what God can do with the ordinary. God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. He's got an ordinary slingshot. In John 9, we read of a blind man who can't see, has been blind from birth. And now everyone's debating who sinned. Was it him or his parents? This is the deal. What happened here? Why is he blind? Jesus hears the debate. And instead of joining in, he starts bending down. And I love it when they say that Jesus' hands were in the dirt because it's the guy who made us from dirt playing with dirt again. So it's like, whoa, whoa, pay attention. Something awesome can happen here. And then he spits in the dirt and takes the dirt and makes a mud pie and then smack puts the mud pie on the dude's eye and can you imagine the world around Jesus I mean he's not in the debate instead he's making castles and now they're like whoa he just put the spit pies on that dude's eyes it's kind of this shock thing right he puts them onto the eyes and then he says can you see ordinary dirt saliva spit brought this man new sight and he saw for the first time extraordinary mud pies from ordinary dirt. It's become so easy for us in today's environment to get swept away with this idea of merely getting by in life. I don't know how many times I've asked people, how you doing? Just trying to make it. And it makes sense. There's a lot happening, but we're missing it. We're missing God in the mundane. We're neglecting to see God's hand in the midst of our lives. This is what I liked about Carrie's story, and she does this. She prepares her eyes in the morning so that in the monotony of chasing those two tyrant kids around, 
She puts on the lenses so she can see God working in it. It's a discipline that I've had to take on to get up real early in the morning and spend time fixing my eyes so that I can see God working in the mundane. So I don't go back to wishing my former life before Jesus was better and wanting to run back to it and neglect what God is doing now. Taking a little inventory. I'm almost done, don't worry. Inventory. Where have you seen God move in the last year? It's hard to see. I'll I'll give you that. Where have you seen him move? Some of us have a closer family system now. You're forced to live with them. Right? Maybe you've had some new friendships formed, and these friendships are deep. Have you noticed that your life has slowed down a little bit? For some of you, some of you it's gotten a little busier. Your life is not as hurried. I know that for me, we were forced to slow down. Before the the pandemic hit, Carrie and I were wondering, what can we get rid of so that we can enjoy our life? And then everything happened, and the answer was all of it. Right? You've been forced to give up some things. The forced slowdowns, the connection with families. For some of you, you've been able to continue your work. That's a gift. For others, you haven't been, but there's been provisions for you. How many of you take your health for granted? All of these things, God moving in the ordinary. And there is no time like the ordinary for us to connect with our God who is the master of it. And as you and I journey from our day-to-day lives in the mostly unexciting, what are the ways we can begin to see God moving in the middle of our lives and realizing that though we're on this road trip that might seem boring, that the excitement's over with, God's riding shotgun with us. And he's saying, I'm with you in the middle of this, and it's going to be great. But you have to have eyes to see it. You have to have your eyes tuned to catch it. God is moving. Will you notice it? Jacob had the best line, I think, in all scripture. Well, yeah, kind of in Genesis. We'll give him that. Surely God was in this place, and I didn't even notice it. Let's not fall into the same line where we get through this and go, wow, God was there and I missed it. Don't miss it. Keep your eyes out for him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are moving in the midst of the ordinary, that you never bore of the monotonous. You never get distracted. You never fall asleep in the passenger seat. You're with us. You're awake. You're talking. You're silent but you're present. And we thank you for that gift. We thank you for the miracle of you in the monotonous. And so God, may you tune our eyes and may we tune our eyes to finding you. May we stop and examine our days. Where did God show up? Where was God in that conversation? Where was God in this email? You can even work through emails. Where's God moving in my neighborhood? In my friends' lives? In my 
spouses' lives. Where is God moving? God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we don't miss you and have the same thing that Jacob said. In your name we pray.